0: Hey, what's going on, CNFers? Hey, if you're looking to get into better physical shape, someone to hold you accountable, you often hire a personal trainer, am I right? Likewise, if your writing needs a boost, that little something-something in your corner, consider letting me help you out. Let me explain. If you're working on a book, ooh, that's a big one, an essay, a query, or even a book proposal, and I'm nose deep in one of those, and you're ready to level up, email me, Brendan O'Meara. Wait. Brendan O'Meara. No, no. Brendan at com, And we'll start a dialogue, okay? I'd be honored to help you get where you want to go. That's brendan at brendanomero.com. Ay, ay, ay.
1: Well, in my case, that usually comes down to like me writing about 10,000 words and then the editor saying, well, (laughs) this is kind of interesting, but let's trim it back to like 1,000, you know? (laughs)
0: Whoa, this is the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, the show where I speak to badass people about the art and craft of telling true stories. I'm Brendan O'Meara. How's it going? It's that Atavistian time of the month. You know, this time, this month, I welcome Bill Donahue, a writer whose work has appeared in a few rags you might have heard of. The New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic, The Washington Post Magazine, Outside Magazine, Runner's World, you know... No big deal. I I haven't heard of him. His latest piece for The Atavis is called The Voyagers, which Bill says.
1: All along, As it is a voyage across the Bering Strait, but it's also sort of a voyage across the landscape of the Cold War.
0: It's a great read. It's a great read. And we dig into some stuff, man. But before that, a little housekeeping, CNFers. I want to remind you to keep the conversation going on Twitter. You can always follow the show at cnfpod or at Creative Nonfiction Podcast on Instagram, the gram. You can also support the podcast by becoming a paid member at patreon.com slash cnfpod. As I say, this show is, is free, but it sure as hell ain't cheap. Members get transcripts, of which I am sorely behind. Is that even a word? Very behind? I don't know. Chances to ask questions of guests... Future Gas special podcast in the pipeline, all sorts of great stuff. Some coaching, editing, all all that kind of thing. Uh, But there are free ways to support the show as well. You can leave a kind review or rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Written reviews for our little podcast that could go a long way towards validating it for the wayward CNFer. We got a nice little flood of written reviews. I read one. I've been reading them as they come in. I read them on the show to give you mad props, the maddest of props. And I'll read another one right now. This one from Hano7. If you listen, well, titled, If you listen to only one podcast for nonfiction authors, this is the one. There are so many options available to debut nonfiction authors to educate themselves on the machinations of the publishing world. I've read some useful guides, attended seminars and writers' conferences, and listened to many podcasts. Brendan O'Mara, hey, has been the most useful. As a physician researcher, I write all day, but writing for a lay audience is di- is a different animal, and we can all use a helping hand. I've been surprised how Some of the most valuable lessons have come from authors in nonfiction genres very different from mine. Brendan reads his broad audience well, directing interviewees towards general topics, including query writing, getting book book deals, and finding your narrative voice. Very highly recommend podcast. Unbelievable. Very highly recommended podcast. Damn it. Jeez, if I could only read, it might even be uh, an extremely highly recommended podcast. We spare no adverbs here. Show notes in my Up to 11 monthly newsletter can be found at Hey, <laughs> Once a month, no spam. So far as I can tell, you can't beat it. So yeah, anyway, thank you very much for that review. It's incredible. And those little things, doesn't take very long, but they they do a lot of heavy lifting. Like I said, for the wayward CNF are coming by browsing the podcast shop and be like, I don't know who the hell that host is, but wow, a lot of reviews and that's a pretty damn good catalog of guests. And if they're talking to them, it might be worth my time. And hell, that's what we do. We try to make it worth your time. First things first, right now we're going to hear from lead editor Jonah Ogles about editing Bill's piece and in general, what it takes for an editor, editor, editor to get a writer to quote that good place, which kind of a could be a kind of a cool name for a podcast, uh, and not, not uh, Michael Shore's "Good Place" that brilliant TV show, but that good place—how editors can get you there. Are you ready? Let's do this riff. <laughs> What were the, the electronic synapses doing when you were reading and editing this piece?
2: Um, you know, this piece had a lot going for it. You know, there, there's, there's a really great adventure narrative at the heart of it, which is, you know, this, this father and his young son want to cross the Bering Strait to defect from the Soviet Union. You know, so crossing from uh, Far Eastern Russia to Alaska. And the Bering Strait is, you know, this terrible, you know, terrible place just in terms of like yeah. climate and topography and, and geography, because it, it's it's such a dangerous place for ships even still. Um, so you've got this this father and son duo trying to cross. That. So, OK, you've checked that box, you know, you've immediately got like this great tension built into the piece. And you know that's the type of story you just sort of get out of the way of it and and let it go. But then there was this other thing that happened as we edited the piece, which is it it became the story about a, a father and a son and and that relationship and the way it evolved and changed and was tried and you know it just on. So beneath all this great adventure and sort of this surface level tension, which is all really good stuff, there was this really deep emotional resonance to it that just, you know, as we as we worked through the edits, it really started to come through and made the piece feel like it had real power behind it.
0: Now, when you were reading this piece and editing it, what did it remind you of structurally and thematically, whether that be other magazine pieces or books or even movies? Uh, You know, what did, you know, Hmm. did it remind you of anything?
2: Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting question. Nothing sort of in pop culture stood out immediately stands out to me. I mean, I think the thing I wanted to do and I'm sort of revealing what a big fan I am of Bill's writing, but Bill is, is one of the all time great profile writers. He's just so good at it. I mean, the the guy has made me cry before reading, reading pieces that, that I've read of his, not necessarily that I've worked on. And so what I, what I was thinking as I was working on the pieces, I was just trying to get, push it towards that good place that that he can get to as a writer. And and it feels a little bit silly to even say that I'm trying to help him do that because I think he he basically just does that if you give him enough chances to read a piece. He he could probably be very well he could be edited by you know just like an AI computer it's just like mm-hmm. a, pretty good. Uh try to make it better this time. And in three drafts he would just turn in something <laughs> amazing. Um, but you know, that, that's what was in my mind it was like, okay, I've got this great writer. I've got this great story. Just how do I, How? what questions do I need to ask in order to get this to be just the best piece it can be.
0: And when you're working with a new, like, an individual writer, like you could say like, I'm bringing the Jonah Ogles playbook to every writer but I know you don't do that. You treat everybody individually. How long does it take you to feel out each writer and realize this writer might need a more nudging? This one just needs a, a simple keep going, uh, you know, versus other ones that might need more hands on hands off. Like, how long does it take you to gauge that with each writer?
2: Yeah, it it comes pretty quickly after the first revision, you know, because I'm i not uh, – I can be a fairly clumsy editor, and, and a lot of times my first memo is just like a throw-it-all-at-the-wall <laughs> type yeah. of memo. You know, like here's virtually every thought I had while re- reading this piece, and sometimes – you know, sometimes that prompts a conversation. Sometimes the writer just says, thanks. When I get the next revision back, that's when I know, okay, you know, this writer is either able to take even sort of slightly confusing comments that I've made and distill them and apply them to the work to make it better. Or, you know, sometimes it just reveals that like a, a piece might have, that there's something sticky about a a particular piece. If something that I had flagged is maybe not working is still not working, but a bunch of other things are, are working or have improved. Then I think, okay, maybe this is just the section that's going to give us a lot of trouble. Um, but then, but then there are writers who, who just seem to have missed it. And, And, and that sounds sort of like dismissive or, or, um, condescending and I I don't mean it to I I think sometimes writers are just too close to a story Mm -hmm. you know and and even when even when you say hey here's a bunch of thoughts that I had that doesn't give them the distance they need to to really engage with the piece and and work from it work with it from a more objective distance and and so then that's when I sort of kick in and say okay I'm going to Give you, you know, maybe I'll give them a structure, or maybe I will rewrite the the 500 words that I think are most problematic, or you know, any number of, or maybe I'll just go to Sayward and be like, I don't know how to help here. What can you know? Hmm. What what tricks do you have? And and then we start trying other sort of more pointed uh, ways of editing to help provide that distance for them.
0: And when you're saying, yeah, this is missing the mark and maybe repeatedly they a writer keeps missing the mark um, what do you do in the in the event where they're saying like no you're missing the mark like and it's like that maybe they can't see it or maybe uh, I don't know if they, that disagreement and that tension you all want to get to the same spot but maybe there's some friction there that is hard to overcome
2: yeah yeah well you know i've had that happen a, a fair bit and and sometimes you know there's some sort of some outside ex- examples of you know instances in, in which the story that the writer wanted to tell is just not a story that that the publication i'm working for wants to tell you know if if bill had said you know, in this story, hey, I don't want to write anything about the Bering Strait because I'm not interested in the adventure stuff. You know, maybe th- there would have been some conflict there, but more often, what happens when a when a writer comes to me and says that they are thinking about the piece in a different way than I am, is that it it allows me to to see the story from in a different light. You know, because I'm I'm just a reader. You know, a story shows up. I start reading the first sentence with all my own preconceived notions and every other piece of writing that I've ever read in my head. And my brain starts doing its own Jonah Ogles thing to each piece it reads, you know, and, and I hope that it's fairly open-minded still. And, and, but you know, I would guess that very quickly my brain starts, okay, this is my adventure narrative. Let's start shaping it into that. And, You know, I think uh, an example, Leah Satili wrote a piece for me and I had sent her some notes and, and she came back to me and said, yeah, yeah, like that all makes sense. But here's what I'm trying to do. And it seems like that's not really coming across. And that allowed us to really just like sit back and go, oh, oh, there's this whole other thing we can try here. You know, let let's dive back in and sort of approach it from a different way. So, I I think those I know writers worry about this a lot when when editors aren't when they feel like an editor's not on the same page. But if it's possible to, it's almost like like couples therapy. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> if you could if you could sit down and talk about it non-judgmentally and say, okay, here here's what I'm trying to do, and clearly that's not working. So. Can you help me understand why it's not working? Those conversations, I think, inevitably make a piece much, much better. And and in a lot of circumstances, like the Leah Satili piece, that became a far better story because she was able to come to me and say, hey, we're talking past each other a little bit. And and I don't mean to suggest that there was any conflict because Leah and I have, have a great relationship. We just, I assumed she was trying to do one thing and she, and that's not what she was doing, you know, and that happens. Yeah.
0: You mentioned earlier how great of a profile writer Bill is and uh, given your experience editing and of course reading, you know, what is it about a profile and a very good profile that really hums for the, for the people out there who really love writing, you know, character driven profile?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's, I worry I'm using this, word a lot in this interview maybe even past ones Um, but there's an emotional resonance to my favorite profiles you know where you feel you feel something for this character you're beneath their skin you know this is why celebrity profiles so often fall flat you know because they uh, the subjects themselves are very guarded individuals and very practiced and so I think for writers you know, what it takes is spending a lot of time with someone, um, establishing a rapport and a connection, you know, caring uh, about their subject, and, and then being able to get that all onto the page in, in a way that allows readers to sort of walk through that, that door of, a, of an open connection that the writer has established with the subject.
0: Very nice. Well, well, Jonah, this is uh, yeah, always great to talk to you, and uh, we're going to turn it over to Bill momentarily and dig in further into, into this piece. So, um, yeah, as always, Jonah, thanks for the time. Thanks for talking shop, and uh, we'll do this again
2: soon. My pleasure. You have a good one.
0: Not bad, right? I like that. Always great to talk to Jonah about these kind of things. You know, sorry for the sloppy read up at the top of the show. I could very well have maybe re-recorded that to make it a little more polished, but if you've ever gotten a look at me, polish is not a word you would associate with your podcast host. We're about to get into it, man, with good old Bill Donahue. This story that he wrote, incredible stuff, chronicles the lives of Valery and Oleg Minnikov as they escape, you know, Russia, Soviet Union, across, get this, the Bering Strait. I type in the Bering Strait into Google Maps just to get a sense of where they were crossing. And there's that northeastern corner of Russia. And then there's Alaska sticking in. And then there's that little strait there. And wow, that is, that is hell. That is some hellish ocean. They crossed the Bering Strait in what was basically a glorified rowboat. uh, So Bill's story dabbles into some history of Ukraine and how Lenin and later Stalin saw Ukraine as essentially a grain silo and also a country that is kind of what we might call less than. So it's great that things have changed on that front. In any case, here's one of the great profile writers you will ever come across, Mr. Bill Donahue. (sighs) Tell me something. Uh, tell me a little bit about the Scriven Arts Colony that you founded in, there in New Hampshire.
1: Okay. Well, uh, I uh, live in a, a very old house. It's not even known how old the house is. It's it was here in 1796. Uh, but uh, anyway, um, my fam- my ancestors bought it in 1905, and uh, I moved up here in 2015. And um, there's a big barn in the back, and so in the summer, uh, I I host uh, cultural events out there: poetry readings, film screenings. I'll have an artist come and talk about their work. Um, so that that's and it's it's named after my grandmother, Jane Scriven Cumming. So
0: nice, nice. And what was the impetus for wanting to found that?
1: My uh, grandmother was very much a sort of the life of the party and always gathered people around her and when I was growing up she was very much the reigning spirit of of this house and Mm. so I wanted to do something kind of to honor her spirit that was the principal impetus but you know also I just thought that you know this is I live in a town where it's an aging town and you know there's there's things going on but there wasn't this going on. And, uh, you know, I thought we could do this and maybe try to bring young people to come and speak. And that would be a way to breathe some life into the town. So,
0: so as a journalist and a reporter and writer of nonfiction, and, uh, when you host the, uh, a common space for, for poets and filmmakers and stuff, th- that kind of culture in what way does that inform the kind of nonfiction storytelling and reporting that you do?
1: I can't say that it directly informs, but I do think that as a writer, you have to kind of inhabit the world of ideas, and you always have to be engaged, and you have to recognize that things are evolving, and you want to keep up with it, and you know, sort of be a part of uh, art as an ongoing endeavor.
0: You know, you s- certainly bring a a, a wonderful uh, storytelling touch to the nonfiction you do, especially with this piece that you did for The Atavist, which was just oh, a thanks. really, a really gripping read that I just kind of, you know, I'll, oftentimes when I read things of this length, it takes me a few breaks to, you know, to break it up into sometimes walk away or, or whatever. Uh, but this, you know, I, I was it just found myself reading it straight through beginning to end. And it was a wonderful story. So I wonder how you arrived at the story of uh, Valerian Oleg. Well, I just happened to be reading an
1: article, a 1988 article that appeared in the New York Times Magazine called The Ice Curtain. Uh, And it made a one paragraph mention to their their expedition. And I was just like, oh, my God, this is an incredible story. Mm -hmm. And uh, right away, I you know, I started doing the math. I'm like, okay, Oleg Minnikoff was six in 1945. How old would he be now? And maybe he's still alive. And, uh, I started Googling and, uh, found some guy with that name who in 1969 was living at this commune and he was arrested on drug charges. It's like, could that be the same guy? And, uh, you know, he lives in California. I called, I made a bunch of calls, emails, whatever to people who were related to him. and sure enough, his son got back to me and said, "Yeah, he's still alive." And uh, here's a picture of the compass that they used uh, to cross the Bering Strait. He sent sent that to me as a text. So wow. So as
0: you're looking to track him down, hoping that he's alive, and then you find out he's alive. So, what is the the process by which you go on the on the on the manhunt, if you will, to to find him? And then once you do, you know, lobby, you know, the son, be like, hey, you know, the, I I want to tell this story. Like, how do you ingratiate yourself in, in, into their trust?
1: Well, the search is fairly basic. I had just a lot of googling and. A little bit of uh, fuzzy logic, but not too much. In this case, Oleg Minikov is a is a very uncommon name. Uh, it so happens that it, it's also a name of some hockey player. But, but mm-hmm. that guy was way way younger, not the same person. Uh, as far as uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, sort of getting access, winning people's trust is is definitely a part of journalism. In this case, I mean. These people were were just overjoyed that I had come along. Here is a guy who his whole life had wanted the story to be told. So, you know, I was very sweetly ushered in. It was, I didn't have to do a lot of uh, conniving to get in to get access here.
0: Now, in the piece too, it's a it's got a three part structure. And the first part, which has, you know, this really harrowing journey across the Bering Strait in a homemade, you know, makeshift k- kayak, which is incredible just to visualize. But that first part is is half of the entire document. Then there are two other parts afterwards. So maybe you can speak to the the structure of the piece and how you weighted certain elements of the story.
1: Well, um you know, I conceived of this all along, as it's it is a voyage across the Bering Strait, but it's also sort of a voyage across the landscape of the Cold War and what the Cold War did to these two people, and uh, you know that in that respect, the voyage is only the first part of it, and in fact, the first the, the the first section doesn't consist solely of the voyage. It it consists of a lot of backstory because they didn't just casually dip their toes in the Bering Strait. I mean, they did that for a very explicit reason. They were, Valery Minnikov was egregiously persecuted uh, in the Soviet Union, going back to, you know, he was a native of Ukraine, just as right now, Russia regarded that as just their pawn Specifically, starting with Lenin, they tried to basically use the the grain from just ex, just seize the grain from from Ukraine and uh, send it around throughout the Soviet Union, and that came down very hard on Belary's parents because they were they were farmers, his family, uh, and they were politically under siege, you know, for most of his life, uh, so. So yeah, so I, I mean, the abuse of, of Ukraine uh really flared up in in I think it was about nineteen nineteen, um, when Lenin decided that he was gonna make uh Ukraine kind of the breadbasket of the Soviet Union. He said he said in a letter to one of his cohorts, grain, 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 and they just began seizing the land of uh and the crops of the more prosperous pre- peasants among them was Valeri's family uh and so really pretty much for his entire adult life his family was uh under siege from from the uh the communist government uh and then and then additionally from the Nazis as well when they occupied Ukraine uh, during World War II
0: mm and you were talking about in this this first part too, that it was you know had yeah you know, a bit of backstory too in some co- historical context. and uh, sometimes narratives can get bogged down in in backstory. so uh, how over the years, in your experience, how have you been able to navigate uh, the amount of backstory that's germane to the forward propulsion of the story and not weigh it down too much despite all the research and reporting you do?
1: Well, in my case, that usually comes down to like me writing about ten thousand words, and then the editor saying, "Well, this is kind of interesting, but let's trim it back to like a You know, yeah. and you're uh, like, oh no, I, 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 <laughs> I, I, I it wasn't a, the ratio wasn't that extreme in this case, but you know, all stories are connected to everything connects to everything else, and uh, I do think that the impulse of writers is to to just go down the rabbit hole a little bit, there's always a balance that you have to strike in telling a story. You can't digress so deeply into the backstory that you you lose all sight of the front story, and uh, that is where a deft editor comes in. And uh, in this case, uh, it was in a lot of cases, in a lot in a lot of spots, a matter more of restructuring things, re putting things in a different order so that you wouldn't feel drowned in the backstory.
0: Now you, you mentioned earlier that this story is as, uh, as important it was for you to tell. It was also equally important. It was something burning inside of Oleg. So maybe you can uh, speak to that and how, you know, how important it was for him to, you know, to really, yeah to get this story out there, given that he's, you know, advanced in age and has Parkinson's syndrome. Disease.
1: Yeah, I, I, I called him. Uh, he, he's living in a nursing home uh, for veterans in California. You know, I just called him up and uh, he was ready to go, very eager to tell his story. And uh, just verbalizing it, that alone was not easy for him because, you know, his, his speech is somewhat impaired at times he doesn't feel great and there's good moments he has in the day and bad moments. But it it was, it was absolutely clear to me from the get go and this, this never wavered that, that he wanted to get this out, every piece of it. And, uh, his, he, he, this was a very, um, he, he took this, this task very earnestly, uh, you know, every story you write, the, the subject of the story has a has a job and a responsibility, and people shoulder that uh, with varying degrees of seriousness. But this guy was very serious about it um, and exacting. And uh, I, I, I just in the fact checking process, there was some very minuscule question about. What nightclub he worked at in 1968 in in San Francisco, and uh, he told the fact checker, "Let me think about that and call me back <laughs> tomorrow." <laughs> you know, so he just wanted to get it right, and uh, I I really I thought that was awesome. And he was uh he was um just extremely straightforward. If he didn't know something, he would tell you. If he forgot, he would tell you. You know, and I sort of independently checked things he said and everything checked out like exa- exactly, you know, and, uh, you know, he, he he wasn't invested in bragging uh, or, you know, somehow spinning it one way or another. He just really wanted to tell the story. So um, I really appreciated it. And for me, it was kind of a affirmation of like this idea that, like ultimately we're made of stories, you know, and each one of us has a story that we wants to be told. I mean, perhaps our story in a lot of cases is very foundational. I mean, in this case, it started for him when he was, you know, three years old and sitting in Stalin's lap in in Siberia. And, and he never forgot the details of that. And I was reminded, you know, um, my mom had Parkinson's as well. And, uh, so she died in twenty seventeen, but starting in about twenty twelve she started writing a book about her father, um with whom she had a complicated rapport. Her parents got divorced when she was very young. her father was sort of overbearing, and it was something in her it was similar in that it was something in her deep past with which she had never quite reconciled and uh she wrote oh, no. i don't know let's say eighty percent of the book. Oh, no. She, she was professionally a writer. This was a book for family oh. circulation, but in any case, she she got to near the end, but she didn't finish it, and uh, it was just starting to look like she wasn't going to finish it because her disease was was coming on coming upon her. And uh, I was like, uh, "Can I ghostwrite write the end for you?" You know, and she's like, "Over my dead body! You're <laughs> going to do that." And And, uh, I came home one day and she was just banging it out and she, she, she did write the end and it was amazing. And, uh, that was the same sort of flourish that I felt Oleg brought to this.
0: And yeah. How did you navigate reporting and interviewing Oleg about the, the relationship he had with his father?
1: Um, you know, it wasn't, it didn't seem Mm -hmm. hard, uh this the question of his father was just incredibly in the forefront of his mind, even though his father died in 1967, uh, it was still an unresolved issue for him. I mean, he told me he was staying at this, uh, hotel when I interviewed him, I, I interviewed him until late in the evening. And then I went to leave the room and he said, turn the TV on because, uh, if, if I like to have the TV on because if it's not on I think about my dad and why I never got him out of the mental mm. institution. So, um it was right there in the forefront. You know, and I had a, I had supporting documents to sort of guide my questioning. Um but uh you know, he he was not reluctant to speak about this. Right.
0: I understand it was a bit of a challenge to procure those documents too, right?
1: Yeah, it's just so the documents we're talking about um the FBI extensively interviewed and tracked Valeri. Uh they had I think it was about 400 pages of notes on the Minikovs. You know, it was that was just a sort of logistical hassle with COVID. Uh these these documents were were uh lodged at at the national archives and i just got the run around from them forever and a bunch of email just you just felt like you were communicating with a brick <laughs> wall and then and then finally they they just said you know you can come and get these documents and then it was just smooth as silk from there yeah. you know and another set of documents were, we actually got Valery's psychiatric mm. records. He, he was in a mental institution with paranoid schizophrenia from 1950 to 1967. And uh, I did get those records as well because Oleg signed on, uh, you know, he was next of kin and he was able to to, to help me get access, so...
0: Yeah, there's um, a a part in the story too you wrote that you know Valery surely sensed the distrust swirling around him. He'd survived Stalin's Russia. He was a connoisseur of paranoia, a man who'd come stateside to escape dark suspicion and on, ominous innuendo. Now was descending upon him again, and he could only bear so much. And you know that that sent him you know off. You know, off, off the edge, as it were, and, you know, into the yeah, mental institution where which really plagued Oleg, too, for the rest of his life.
1: Well, yeah, what happened was uh, in, in 1948, the uh, FBI began tracking Valeri because uh, at, at that point, well, in 1946, I believe it was, he and Oleg moved out to Mabton, Washington. Which is out in the farm country, but it's very close to the uh, the Hanford nuclear reactor. They felt that maybe he was trying to steal secrets from Hanford, and uh, so they they sent what I know of is they sent uh, in August 1948. Uh, they sent six FBI agents out there to Mapton to spend four days, and you know they tracked him doing those most quotidian things like going to the movies going to the store, and uh, you know they were hiding out in the hayloft, watching at his every move. And you know th- this helped to drive the guy insane. In 1950, he, he really went insane, and uh, he, he went berserk. Uh, he got thrown into prison. He tried to uh, – well, he did rip the bed out of the floor, tried to use it as a battering ram to escape, and he had to be tear-gassed into mm. submission. So – then they put them in a mental institution, so it's pretty pretty horrible
0: when you when you're writing about someone like Oleg and uh, people of that nature too who let you into their lives and you know you're essentially trusted to you know interview them with with care and tell their story and you come to care about these people, but you also as a journalist have to tell a fair and honest story so I'm curious how you navigate. That when you're with someone who you know you you come to care about, and but at the same time you still have to you know be as honest and true as possible uh, as well.
1: Well, yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting question. I mean, you know, oh, like I found him to be an infinitely infinitely likable guy. People were quoted as saying, you know, he he he's sort of an innocent. He has no guile or animus for anybody or no no malice but you know he he does have some dark uh stripes on his uh record i mean he 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 went to prison uh for for dealing acid in the 90s and uh you know that that caused misery in the lives of the people around him he had an eight-year-old son at the time so you know i included that in the story you know, he he stole a car in in the in the fifties when he was a teenager. I, I I don't think that's you know that's not a significant thing that he did. But you know, I, I did try to present a comprehensive picture of him. Uh, that is certainly a, a ethical challenge with journalism. But uh, you know, the things that Oleg did were not evil. They were they were stupid <laughs> right. uh, but but, but uh, there's a big difference you know um so i i didn't see him as a morally complex character in that mm. way
0: yeah well it's uh yeah it's it's a really wonderful story and like i said it's an incredibly uh, gripping read and um so i just you know from one writer to another just i admire it so much and deeply commend you on a job well done um so uh, yeah, of course the story is going to be on the any any day now. But uh, but for people who might not be familiar with your work, or uh, where can they find you online, Bill?
1: Well, I have a website, just billdonahue which is D O N A H U E, and uh, uh, I'm on Twitter,
0: billdonahue thirteen. So... Do you ever forget to breathe when you're talking sometimes? Like when I, when I read some scripts and stuff, sometimes I forget to I forget to take a breath. Oh. well, we, we've come to the end, CNFers. Oh man, that was a good one. Always is. Usually is. Most of the time it is. Thanks to Jonah, to Bill, and of course to the Atavis, who lets us who we get to you know kind of square dance here once a month and we dosy do Love doing these little things. Nothing like celebrating great work. And nobody does it better than the crew of The Atavist putting together. Putting together just incredible things for us to read every single month. Right from the designers to the writers, the editing, the copy editing, the fact checking. No one makes these stories in a vacuum. And few, if anybody, does it better than they do over at Atavist. Am I right? Subscribe to this here little podcast. Uh, wherever you podcast cnfers and if you have a moment consider leaving that kind review of apple Podcasts or a rating on spotify you know we, we can well all we can never never get enough of them and they're amazing amazing and I, like i said i love, love to read them at the top of the show to give you a little shout out and of course consider window shopping at uh, patreon.com cnf pod and uh, that's where that's what we're going to do. That's where we're going to cut this sucker off. I usually have a parting shot. Some of you might be familiar with that, who listen to these podcasts more on the reg. But uh, we're going to have another one coming up Friday on the usual CNF Friday. So we're just going to do a parting shot then. We have two new producers for this podcast. Now, of course, Hank has been the executive producer for a long time. And now we have Kevin, who is a German shepherd mix. Uh, Kevin's a girl. We named her Kevin. Uh, Kind of a hat tip to the movie Up And we also just think it's kind of cute to have a a female dog named Kevin She's a 10-year-old German Shepherd mix She's beautiful She kind of looks like a deer Uh, She's kind of got the little hip thing that uh, older Germans will have But she's a lovely little addition to our family Hank has been shooting daggers uh, of late But right now they are behind me sharing a bed Which is uh, a sign, a good sign As we like to say in the podcast industry we don't like to say that in the podcast industry, but we do say it here at CNF pod HQ. And if there's anything I know about CNF pod HQ is that if you can't do interview, see ya.